0: Freedom is a pure idea. It
1: occurs spontaneously and without instruction.
0: See what the Empire has done to your lives? Your You're families and your freedom?
1: Good people will fight if we leave them. The rebellion is spreading. Now we take the war to them. The Republic will be systems either change or die. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and, and you condemn the galaxy to I an eternity of submission. i do wake up. There is one way. i fighting. It. Long live the Empire! Fight the Empire! Let's call it
0: war. Remember this. Try.
1: Hey, Sophie. Hi, Eleanor. You know about the Russian reversal? Those jokes where you say a thing about America and then you say the same thing about Soviet Russia but reverse? No. <laughs>
0: Definitely not
1: The weird thing about, about the Russian Reversal is it is kind of like this lazy xenophobia Trying to convince you that America is this perfect paradise In contrast to the horrible dystopia that is the USSR But they're also fun And hypothetically, you can map the format to other dictatorial states So, let me run this by you In the New Republic, you watch the Holonet In the Galactic Empire, Holonet watches you
0: Very good
1: In the New Republic, you might break the law In the Galactic ooh, Empire ooh, ooh. What? law breaks you in the new republic there are loads of places to hang out you can always find a party in the galactic <laughs> empire party finds you hello and welcome to daughters of Ferrix, the only podcast about star wars politics and history that also features a misspelled name this is real so you know the symbol the backwards r that's the cyrillic letter Ya. which if we're being sticklers about it our logo reads like Daughters of fayax which is nonsense Cool uh, A little bit like culturally inconsiderate But I don't care It's Russian They're white Uh, I love our logo I'm not complaining one bit I, I've been waiting for an episode to talk about to that To
0: talk about it And you have to do it in the episode Where we're talking about Yosef Juglavashi Or however the hell you say his name I looked this up I still cannot get it right So I will be mispronouncing his name
1: Before we get started We've got an announcement Announcements, to
0: make. announcements, announcements
1: We've had people asking How can I support the show? And we fire finally have an answer.
0: Yes, support capitalism. Support the Daughters <laughs> of Ferrex podcast. Da- Give us
1: your money. Daughters of Ferex is launching a Patreon. You can pay as little as $3 a month for our undying gratitude, as well as perks like early access to episodes, episode outtakes, and access to our Daughters of Ferrex Discord server, including discussion channels and a feed where I'll be sharing commentary on whatever book or text I'm reading for the show. And if you join for $10 or more, you'll have access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes. We've got a bonus episode available right now. It features a discussion between Sophie and I, where we talk about what the galactic government could look like after Star Wars Episode Nine,
0: Including my brilliant, unprecedented concept for how society should work.
1: Yeah, Sophie's a real pioneer. So head on over to patreon.com slash Daughters of and help keep this show running. Despite being entirely unprofitable, the show is basically my full-time job right now. I spend a lot of time researching, writing, editing, and working on clip and episode uploads because I love and care about this show, as does Sophie. She also writes and also reads, and it takes time. But that sort of thing is only sustainable for so long. So the more support we have, the more secure the future of this show will be. And the more I can work with y'all to make sure this show is what you want it to be, too. We are so grateful for any financially responsible support you're able to give, even if that just means listening, mailing in, or sending this episode to your Star Wars buddies. That's an incredible kindness you do for us and our work. I don't love asking for money, but I want to be able to keep making this. So for those who feel able, check out patreon.com slash Daughters of Ferex. We hope you won't be disappointed.
0: You won't be disappointed. We're great. We're the best Star Wars podcast.
1: Yeah? hmm How many Star Wars podcasts do you listen to, Sophie? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really diverse pool. Does recording you're...
0: this one count?
1: <laughs> it's a real different experience recording it versus listening to it back. Okay. Andor, 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 andor season one. Our favorite thing to talk about on the Dardis of podcast. Andor truly is the Star Wars show that nobody asked for about a character no one liked that came out swinging when no one really expected it. Just kidding. Fuck the haters. I was an Andor evangelist from day fucking one. (laughs) They announced this thing in 2018, and I kept telling people for years, keep an eye on Andor, that thing's gonna be real good. Diego Luna was excellent in Rogue One, Cassian's cool as hell, and he's gonna be even better here. When they finally showed up that trailer at Celebration 2022, I was like, oh yeah, I'm so validated. The way this fucking looks, the way this fucking sounds, the like sheer number of characters. I told my wonderful mother to her face to mark my words that Andor would be the best Star Wars since The Last Jedi, at least. And it fucking was. Damn the naysayers, no one believed me.
0: Andor honestly might be the best Star Wars period, dare I say.
1: What I didn't expect is that Andor would include a pretty cogent and complex portrayal of fascism and like political radicalism in general. It's not all propaganda and political theory. It's got plenty of fluff and character drama and some pretty excellent world building. But I don't know, they, they may as well have had the scene where Cassian turns to the camera and says, I am a communist now and then specifies he's the exact kind of communist I am. I knew Andor would be good, but I didn't think it would push the Star Wars Overton window as much as it did. I think we should always be hesitant to credit any on-screen work to primarily one person, particularly when it's a single man. Auteur theory can feel reasonable sometimes, but it's a really slick way to ignore the work being done by everyone behind and around the camera for the sake of doing like great man theory for your favorite movie.
0: We're going to talk about an actual great man today.
1: I guess in the, in in, in, in the, the context of great man yes, theory not we, we as are in the talking about fact that he's a good man, a capital G capital M great man.
0: That's not very frequent. Most of the time history is determined by like trends and like cultural shifts and climate and things like that. But there is occasionally like a guy who just changes the course of history by themselves like
1: that, that does happen
0: it does happen it's
1: just not the main one no uh, and it's not the main one with television shows and with movies so a word here of recognition for Susanna White Benjamin Caron Bo Willeman, Dan Gilroy Luke Hole, and Michael Wilkinson alongside a lot of other people for making Andor so deeply special that being said, it is clear that when a Mr. Anthony Gilroy became showrunner, the direction of the Cassian Andor show drastically changed. It was originally conceived as like a spy thriller show, probably in the same genre as like Burn Notice. An executive producer of the show, The Americans, Stephen Schiff was originally hired for the project and ended up writing episode eight of the final product. And at that point, the show was very focused on the ongoing pairing of Cassian and K2SO. But when Lucasfilm started chatting with Tony Gilroy in 2019, just for funsies, Tony thought this focus was well done, but limited and claustrophobic. So he drafted this letter to Kathleen Kennedy, president of Lucasfilm, and sent her a series pitch. Quoting Tony from an article with Deadline.com here, I wrote a long letter back to her, if you're going to do it, maybe you should do something this insane. And it was a year later when they came back and said, you know, we kind of thought about it. Would you be into doing that insane version that you pitched? Tony Gilroy worked a few years prior to patch Rogue One together in order to get it out by its 2016 release date. He both did some writing work and contributed as an uncredited pickup director. Lucasfilm wanted to make more Star Wars with Gilroy, but at the time he wasn't really interested. But they sent him this script, and on paper, it makes a lot of sense to get him on the project. He wrote four Jason Bourne movies so he can do spy shit, he wrote and directed the legal thriller Michael Clayton, and he's got a consulting credit on House of Cards. But Andor became this much different beast. The insane version of the Cassian Andor show was a drama and a thriller, but it was also dystopian science fiction, Dickensian in its level of character focus, and surprisingly politically solvent, particularly for a Star Wars show. (laughs) And frankly, a lot of that comes down to the inspiration that drove the people who worked on it. When Diego Luna, who also served as an executive producer, was asked about the show's inspiration, he described the way that he grew up in Mexico City and learned the history of revolution and political change in Latin America from a place of relative privilege. In Andor, is represented an understanding of what oppression and corruption and border violence actually do to people. But what's the lived experience of people of color compared to some cracker who reads a bunch? Because so much of the heft of Andor Season 1 and the joy of the way its story is told comes from Tony Gilroy's own passions as an amateur historian. Quoting Gilroy this time from an article on Rolling Stone, I'm the classic old white guy who just can't get enough history. The last 15 years, I've been reading all nonfiction.
0: I love him. He's my dad. Not my dad, my grandpa.
1: He's very likable. You could go back 6,000 years through all of recorded history. You go back to Sumerians, you go back to Etruscans versus the Romans. You can find it anywhere you want. Oppression, authority, the misuse of human beings, these are universal. So yeah, this is about oppression. This is about colonialism. This is the abuse of power. This is about revolution.
0: Is he a historical materialist? Because he talks like a historical materialist.
1: <laughs> Probably, I don't mm. know. I would have to ask him. (laughs) Gilroy, further, seems to have a certain fondness for logistical questions, for the mechanics of historical and political change. Quoting again, This shit all costs money. People gotta eat, they gotta get guns, they gotta get stuff. It's knowing that and wanting to say something about that. Almost no one ever pays attention to that part of it. It's an underutilized area of storytelling. I'm always obsessed with what my characters make and where they're getting their money. All through every revolution, it's the same thing. It takes coin. And yeah, Andor does that a lot. Mon Mothma is introduced as someone who's funneling funds from her considerable wealth into Luthen's network. Luthen himself is this guy who's all about moving money, resources, kit, and individuals. He buys stolen goods, provides Sagarera's partisans with Starship hardware, and transmits information from cell to cell. It says something when the guy that the ISB names Axis, that the rebel effort revolves around, uses a modified Hallcraft to get around. None of that is to mention the second arc of Andor, one quarter of the first season, which is largely devoted specifically to the planning, setup, and execution of an insurgent mission to infiltrate an imperial facility on the planet Aldani, in order to steal a sector's quarterly payroll to be used to further the rebellion. A seven-person team with one on the inside scramble comms to the local airbase and disguise themselves in army uniforms. They take the stationed Commandant and his family hostage, load up on about 80 million credits (laughs) before they're caught, and, taking heavy losses, blast their way out aboard a box freighter. It's good shit. I like the Aldani arc a lot. Rest in peace, Nemec. Rest in peace, Nemec. When asked about his focus on the cash of the rebellion, Gilroy specifically cites the book Young Stalin by historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, a nonfiction novel about Stalin's early life and his transformation from a childhood in poverty into a political gangster. The author previously wrote about Stalin's life and based his writings in letters, diaries, and other writings by people who were close to the man in order to get a more intimate picture. Your mileage may vary with regard to Montefiore to Yuri's politics. He doesn't seem like a crank, but his Twitter sure has a lot of pro-Israel bullshit on it. But he wrote a book, and it seems like it's at least reasonably historically accurate. It's relevant to what we're doing today. Especially relevant because when Tony Gilroy tells Rolling Stone about young Stalin, he mentions a 1907 bank heist that Stalin participated in, described early in the book. And clickbaity media tabloids had a field day with this, and soon the narrative arose that Cassian is Stalin, <laughs> and the Aldani <laughs> heist was based on the bank robbery. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia itself echoes this. In its article about the heist, the behind-the-scenes section claims in no uncertain terms that Tony Gilroy modeled the Aldani heist off of a bank robbery by Joseph Stalin in 1907. Which, maybe he did. In the Rolling Stone article, Gilroy specifically says that they're not doing the Stalin show, but maybe he was lying. Maybe General Secretary Joseph Fissionarovic Stalin's early life featured a getaway in a Mach 7 Rono box freighter flown through a glittering green celestial phenomenon during which his twink best friend got his spine crushed by a pallet of money. I don't know. How could we ever find out? If only someone had bought the book and read the beginning section. And someone else (laughs) read the whole book. And they could tell us about this bank heist in order to do an episode about it in which we can finally figure out if this claim holds any water whatsoever. Oh, wait, I bought the book, I read part of it, Sophie read the whole thing, and I'm making Sophie tell us about it, because last episode was a pain in the ass, and I needed a break. So, that's what we're doing today. They say Donnie's from Young Stalin, we bought the book, and now it's time to report. Book report, book report. Book
0: report, wow, I haven't done one of those in a long time. And Eleanor is going to connect this to the life of young Andor, since, according to the tabloids, um, <laughs> Andor is, in fact, They, they Stalin. are so
1: deeply, inextricably linked. If you can't tell where I fall on the question what the thesis of this episode is yet. I guess stay tuned.
0: Stay tuned. So, our good friend and frequent guest on the Daughters of Ferex podcast, Joseph Stalin. You might have heard of him. Uh, Known for being one of the baddest baddies in all of history, our boy Joseph is either indirectly or directly responsible for the deaths of somewhere between 20 and 30 million people.
1: Either one. On the low end. Doesn't really matter at some point. (laughs) He was
0: responsible for the transformation of the newborn Soviet Union to perhaps the first example of true Tolentarian government In the history of the world Damn it He was an all-around bad boy And people could tell Uh, Leon Trotsky Erstwhile member Of the Bolshevik faction That fomented The infamous October Revolution Who Stalin I should mention Had killed with an ice axe In 1940 Mm. Once noted A malicious gleam In his narrow yellow eyes
1: My boy Trotsky Fucking Had him pegged
0: It was like a really weird moment Too when he noticed this During the October Revolution When he and Stalin And Lenin And all these other guys Are like living together in a palace in St. Petersburg, you know, plotting the revolution and coordinating things. Dudes rock. The secretary of the Navy, like the people's commissar for the Navy, I think it was. He and his girlfriend were fucking behind a screen in the same room with Trotsky and Stalin. And and Trotsky and
1: Stalin are alone for the first time.
0: And and Stalin tried to make a joke about it to Trotsky and Trotsky being a prude was not, (laughs) was repulsed. And
1: so Trotsky's issue with Stalin was just that Stalin was a creep.
0: Stalin made some kind of like funny comment about it. And like Trotsky was a, was a weirdo and then from that moment onward Stalin hated Trotsky (laughs) and like that's when Trotsky noted like oh he had a like you know vindictive gleam in his eyes from then
1: forward Trotsky didn't like my joke god dudes are so petty (laughs) my guy
0: should have laughed at the joke man you wouldn't have got ice axed in Mexico Which, by the way, is a very funny way to kill someone, I will say. It's
1: it's up there. It's up there.
0: Uh, So today we're going to talk about how Stalin came to be the bank heist that made his name and how he wriggled his way into absolute power over the Red Empire that would forever bear his mark. Fucking
1: Stalin.
0: Uh Nay Yosef Juglavashi. Yeah. Uh, oh wait, no. Jugashvili. Jugashvili. Called so-so by his friends and family for much of his life. Joseph Stalin was born on the eighteenth of December 1970, er, 1978. <laughs> He's still <so>
1: alive, guys. <laughs> he in was- our heart. <laughs> He came out a year after Star Wars.
0: Born on the 18th of December, 1878, to Georgian parents, Beso and Keke Jugashvili.
1: Jesus Christ, that's a lot of Russian names.
0: They're Georgians, though. They speak Georgian. It's Georgian
1: a language? <laughs>
0: Georgian is a language. <gasps>
1: That's why I'm the Star Wars person.
0: Yeah, Stalin didn't actually learn Russian until he went to seminary. Stalin's parentage is, however, something of a matter of dispute, as his mother was, by all accounts, an attractive woman and was known to have had affairs with at least three men the time before he was born. Girls rock. Uh, these included a Georgian Orthodox priest, a cop. No, and- <laughs>
1: girls don't rock anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the man who would become Stalin's effective godfather, whose name I cannot pronounce. You didn't Google how to pronounce it? Egnatashvili. That sounds
1: like Russian or Georgian or whatever.
0: All of these men were suspected of fathering the boy, uh, rumors of which Stalin would encourage throughout his life, especially the priest. <laughs> <laughs> He's a
1: priest. Son, he could never do wrong.
0: Well, and actually the reason how he got into seminary and like the church school that he's going to go to was by claiming to be that guy's kid.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> that's good. That's good shit. Every kid should get to lie about having a couple of different dads, I think. True. Just in case he gotta get into school.
0: But regardless of parentage, Keke doted on Stalin, who was the first of her three children to survive infancy. Oh. Yeah. Okay. They got married, baso knocked her up, they have the kid and they think he dies because they don't get him baptized soon enough. <coughs> Um, oh. and so the next time they're like okay well we'll get him baptized immediately and we'll make a pilgrimage to this like holy site nearby this time they have him and they baptize him but they wait too long to go on the pilgrimage so they think that because they waited too long to go on the pilgrimage oh. he died and so they have that they have Stalin and they baptize him immediately and take him on a pilgrimage he still almost dies so um, they didn't
1: wait longer to go on the pilgrimage
0: yeah Times were good, Beso was a prosperous cobbler with a booming business and multiple apprentices, nice. but then alcohol. <laughs> Like the concept? No, uh, Bezos started drinking and became an alcoholic. But suffice it to say that the family's prosperity faded somewhat quickly once Bezos' alcoholism made it impossible for him to keep his hands from shaking. He's a shoemaker. Um,
1: Time for a different job.
0: So he would remain an inconsistent and abusive presence at best for the rest of Stalin's adolescence. Dads are tough. They are tough. Dads are tough. Stalin was born in not quite a village, but at the time it was much smaller than it is now. It's like 200,000 people now. But it was seven or 8,000 people. It's called Gori. And, you know, the old saying, it takes a village, was proven to be true. And all these people, including the three people who are thought to possibly be his father, started kind of helping to raise him because his mom didn't really have any money because Baso's off, like, doing whatever. And she's, like, you know, washing clothes for a living. And so all these people are, like, you know, helping him, giving him food, giving him money. And he learned the value of a commune. no. This one priest pretends to be his father to get him into Gory's church school, which is like where you go before you go to seminary to become a priest. Nice. By all accounts, Stalin was a dedicated and pious student, earning top marks and becoming locally famous for his beautiful singing voice. He was, like, really into Russian or, or Georgian orthodoxy for, like, most of his childhood. He would be, like, the altar boy. He would carry on around the cross or swing the thurible or whatever. Like, he was into it and very intelligent, although teachers and local merchants noted that he had a vindictive streak. Uh, his pranks became infamous. Uh. Uh, Stalin was also a big fan of his town's annual communal wrestling event, where this... St- <laughs>
1: All right, keep going.
0: Uh, where the city of Gori would take several days off to beat the living shit out of one another. And I am not kidding. This is an actual thing that would happen every year. So he got really good at street fighting as a child. But he's going to school. He's doing really good. He's going to church a lot. And I should mention that his father disapproved of both of these things and would like <laughs> physically drag him out of school sometimes and try and force him to
1: make shoes. <gasps> because his father couldn't make shoes <laughs> for shit. his father shit.
0: wasn't fat at making shoes now. And so he was trying to teach his son to be a shoemaker.
1: What is a child if not... Uh, an extension of their father's ego.
0: But even before he left school to go to seminary in the much larger Tiflis, which he's gonna do in a second, which is now known as Tbilisi, it's the capital of Georgia, Stalin was an atheist because Darwin had made a big impression on a young man (gasps) formed in the like fundamentalist rigors of, you know, early 20th century Georgian orthodoxy. Oh my God,
1: he's just like me for real. But
0: despite Stalin's, you know, latent atheism, his mother was very determined that he become a bishop eventually, like, you know, big white hat, think of that, that's what a bishop is. Uh, His mom really wanted him to become that because one time she saw a bishop come in from a different city and was very impressed. That's the whole reason.
1: That is the type of shit that like small town people from before the 20th century would like, you just see a guy and you go, that's cool. And that's the only thing you have for the rest of your life. (laughs)
0: Yeah, life used to be very different than it is now. So he goes to seminary, you know, his mom has to scrounge together a bunch of money for this. The priest has to pretend to be his dad again to get him in. It's a whole, it's a whole (laughs) thing, but he goes to seminary and he's still a really good student uh, in all of his classes and has time to have a short though successful poetry career on the side you know good like five I think five of his poems are published and some of them are still like considered classics of the Georgian canon because they are quite good really yeah hmm. I've only read them translated into English but they aren't bad
1: lots of people have a poetry streak few people have a good poetry streak
0: yeah props to Stalin unlike his most contemporary tyrant Hitler he was a successful artist
1: whoa get whoa, fucked Hitler get
0: fucked Hitler! or that's why you lost World War II Hitler is because Stalin was a poet and you suck at art
1: I find it kind of distressing how you can never talk for that long about Stalin without bringing up Hitler. Whether it is in like a literal like world history sense or in a, I don't know, we need to talk about the other guy Red way. Hitler. He's the other guy. <laughs> I
0: mean, he killed like... It's
1: exhausting. It's so tiring. He killed
0: like, I don't know, probably half as many people as Hitler.
1: I'm so sick of Hitler, you guys. I hate so, Hitler. So... Oh, you hate <laughs> Hitler. Take. Hitler, not a great hey, Elon guy. Elon
0: Musk did a good thing. What? Elon Musk did a good thing.
1: Did he say he didn't like Hitler? No,
0: he banned at Hitler on Twitter. <gasps>
1: wow! Oh, wow. I thought comedy was legal. Um, in
0: 1894, at seminary, Stalin became a voracious reader, plowing through books, both banned and unbanned, because, you know, they had approved literature for the seminary. He held group discussions of Marxist theory and philosophy in his dorm room with other radical clerics to be, and he and other boys began sneaking out of the school to attend secretive meetings with railroad workers in the bad part of town. Wait, 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 Marx mentioned? Marx mentioned when he went to seminary, he discovered Marx and was instantly <laughs> into it
1: like the true religion. Yeah,
0: we're going to talk about this later how um Marxism isn't so much an ideology for Stalin as a religion.
1: Hmm. I wonder how that could go wrong.
0: Yeah, should have been Trotsky. Moving on. <laughs> as Soso's revolutionary ardor grew, his studies began to slip and he was reprimanded and put in solitary confinement. The seminary had solitary confinement for students who were misbehaving. Okay, that
1: sounds like some seminary shit.
0: Maybe like early 1900s seminary. Yeah, you're probably correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for disrespect teachers and skipping mass and or prayers, which he would <laughs> like Stalin at this point was being quite funny, like how he would like skip out of mass or prayers. He would just sit there talking to his buddies like loudly during sermons and stuff and would like just flip everyone off and walk out the
1: back <gasps> during prayers. What? Seriously? The the Georgian equivalent of flipping. Through. Oh, that is God. I'm so sorry. Stalin was iconic for that.
0: It is quite funny. That's
1: amazing.
0: Yeah. And he developed an enmity with one monk in particular, Father of Abishides, known to the seminarians as the Black Spot. Sure. He was a ruthless inquisitor, constantly raiding the boys' rooms for contraband and banned literature.
1: So wait, wait, wait. Which inquisitor is he most like? Are we thinking like the third sister? Like the, like I the ninth more sister? more like the Spanish
0: Inquisition because no one expects him.
1: So he's like the fourth sister?
0: Sure. Sure, why not? Stalin eventually confronted the Black Spot, but the father would have his revenge. Abishids raised Stalin's tuition in secret. <gasps> resulting in his expulsion
1: oh that is dirty as hell i know like that he just raised his up.
0: tuition didn't tell him because stalin was still going to graduate right like he would have still become a priest there are a lot of radical priests. Today is actually like the feast day of an Episcopal priest who was shot for wanting to integrate black people into the church. So anyway. That rules. Good for them. Well, I'm not good for him. But... Not
1: good for him, but you know, there are yeah. a lot of worse things to martyr um, yourself over. But
0: yeah, he was expelled and Stalin would, to his mother's dismay, never become a bishop. Although I will say that the author of Young Stalin does like to call him the supreme pontiff of international Marxism. <laughs> so he called him the, the, the Marx Pope. Um, Close enough. Stalin, newly freed from the rigors of seminary life and with an easy new job as a weatherman, uh, had more time to read, organize railroad workers, and become further radicalized. (laughs) He moved very quickly past the moderate ideas of the Mensheviks who dominated Georgia at the time and discovered the man with whom he would eventually turn the world upside down, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, known to the ages (sighs) as Lenin.
1: Vladimir Ulyanov. What's he up to?
0: Still pretty young at this point, so he's not like in charge of anything really. Right. But he's like, I think... In Paris, living in Paris, writing stuff. Mm. So, in his Nemic era. In his Nemic era. Yeah. So, in 1899, Stalin and some of his former seminary compatriots, because a lot of people got expelled with Stalin, like 40 people. Did they also get their tuition all- raise? No, they were just expelled the normal
1: way. Oh. Because there
0: wasn't a good reason to expel Stalin. These guys got themselves expelled. For Stalin? No, just in general. Because they oh. were all like, you know, Marxists and such.
1: So, they were also icons.
0: Sure. They all end up, like, basically all 40 of these people end up in a jail cell together. By accident? No, because they petitioned to get put together because they were <gasps> bored. And the governor of Georgia at the time, who, or the viceroy was his official title, who the Tsar had appointed, was kind of a lib at the time. Um,
1: I love students. And so
0: he wanted to be nice to them. And so he put them all in a cell together where they could talk and have fun. Um, that sounds awesome. Eventually, the patriarch of the Georgian church visits them to try and convince them all to become priests. <gasps> it's like a whole thing. Oh, my God. Um. Yeah, but in 1899, Stalin and some of his former seminary compatriots got to work organizing Tiflis's workers according to Lenin's more radical style, eventually fomenting several major strikes. I mean, base, like, yeah. yeah. As leftists tend to do, however, they were in constant conflict with Jordania and Jedils, who were the leaders of the Georgian Mensheviks, as well as anyone who they perceived to be insufficiently radical.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah.
0: Stalin began printing a newsletter, a lifelong occupation of his, and also became involved in the sordid world of underground revolutionary encounter revolutionary conspiracy that pervaded the Russian Empire at the time. Fun fact, Stalin was the first writer of Pravda. Really? Truth. And its predecessor, which was a weekly, called Vetsya, which I believe was Torch. In his
1: Nemec era.
0: Stalin actually wrote a lot of stuff. Yeah. So... But due to this kind of infighting with the Mensheviks, he eventually outstayed his welcome in Tiflis and had to move to Batumi, which was an oil city on the Black Sea. He did big work in Batumi, and I have a list here of fun things that he did. So he instigated a bunch of strikes. He does a lot of strike instigating in his early years. He set a Rothschild oil refinery on fire (gasps) after having been hired as a worker and was not caught. What? Uh Uh-huh. And then he set up protection rackets with a whole bunch of like tycoons would pay him and the Bolsheviks for protection from not having their oil refinery. Binary burnt down? <laughs> And
1: then Stalin would send that money to Lenin. That is such bullshit. Okay, so wait. <laughs> at this point, Lenin's like his organizer. Yeah. Lenin's so he's like been
0: he's been in like informal contact with Lenin, sort uh-huh. of, through the Bolshevik Party, which is like an emerging faction of the Communist Party that exists in Russia at the time.
1: So so Stalin is out here like strong arming stuff and doing And Sending and money action. to the Bolsheviks. Okay. And Lenin is like dude who's like sending stuff. Lenin is like Luthin. Lenin's the Luthin. No, here. Stalin <laughs> is Luthan. Oh, so Stalin's Luthan and Lenin is
0: Luthen. Lenin is Nemec. <laughs> Lenin is not Nemec. Lenin is off in the corner writing bullshit that no okay. one cares about. And Stalin is actually financing like the entire Bolshevik party
1: by robbing people. But Luthen isn't actually robbing people. Luthien is just making um, people rob people.
0: But Stalin isn't actually robbing people. He's just having his henchmen rob people. Okay. Okay. And he keeps doing this for a long time. Overall, he was basically running the town. Like he was a really good gangster. He was running the city by the time he was sent into exile in 1902. This
1: is still in Tiflis, and uh, uh, no, he's moved to Batumi. Oh, right, okay, which is an okay, oil city. Okay, and then he's exiled. And then he's exiled <laughs> because he's, he has a protection racket. He finally
0: gets caught. He goes to jail for a while before this, but then he goes into exile in Siberia. Uh, this would be the. <laughs> first... <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he gets an idea
0: <laughs> well funnily enough uh, this will be the first of his nine arrests and five eventual exiles by the tsarist regime all Damn. of which except for the last one he escapes from that's pretty good he's he's kind of a houdini basically he was also running the prison when he was in it as well because there were a lot of marxists in prison at the time in, in tsarist russia and so since he was the boss of the bolsheviks he ended up in charge of the prison
1: oh my god <sighs> he
0: has such a fun life so upon his return from exile in late 1903, because he escaped, he was meant to be in exile for five years.
1: <laughs> How do you escape exile? You just walk away. <laughs> you just walk what toward Tsarist, wherever you were sent to. What from. the
0: Tsarists don't tell you is that you can just leave Siberia. Because like, they didn't have camps. Like, they would just send you to a town and you would have to live in the town in Siberia.
1: And then Stalin said, hmm, <laughs> I am having an idea.
0: He got like all of his Bolshevik friends to send him money so he could leave.
1: That rules. <laughs>
0: (laughs) But yeah, he resumed his revolutionary and terrorist activities, but with a new end in mind, because like before he'd been kind of like just giving money to the left and to the Bolsheviks. Now he's specifically sending it to Lenin because while he was in exile, he got his first ever letter from Lenin. Like Lenin sends him a letter and he's like fangirling. He's fangirling. He's so excited. He calls him Mountain Eagle, which is a high term of praise in Georgia. Sure. (laughs) He'll call him this like for the rest of his life too. Like Lenin was my mountain eagle.
1: (laughs) His his poet days are long behind him.
0: Yeah. And he's just enthralled. He loves Lenin. He's super obsessed. And then as he comes back, the tempo of robberies and extortion and such just like exponentially increases in
1: the oil town,
0: in the oil town. And he's back in Tiflis now because a bunch of the Mensheviks who got him thrown out of Tiflis have also been arrested. Got it. (laughs) And he's also in Baku, which is the capital of Azerbaijan. He is like running the entire Bolshevik operation in the Caucasus and just stealing shit everywhere. He's he's (sighs) he's 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 kind of a badass at this time. Got to be honest. But in 1904, just as he's getting back from exile and he's starting to resume and amp up like all of his like operations of stealing shit and extorting people and like running whole swaths of the countryside, Tsar Nicholas does a very dumb thing. Have you heard of the Russo-Japanese War? Yes, I have. Yes, you have. Uh, So Nicholas II had foolishly gotten into a fight. He wasn't ready to, you know, win (laughs) (laughs) over Port Arthur, which was like this really shitty warm water water port that Russia had in like the Yellow Sea, I think it is. Uh, It was just like on a peninsula and it was like 20,000 people and Russia throughout its history is always obsessed with warm water ports (laughs) and they had finally gotten one. And then Japan is like, how about no?
1: (laughs) We have one place that is warm, (laughs) one place where we don't have to fucking bust ice off of our ships during the winter. Yeah,
0: and it ends up like Russia has not modernized its military very well, and Japan has because they're afraid of getting imperialism right. by Americans. Right. Go Commodore Perry, thanks for creating World War II. But they just get crushed on land, and then their Eastern fleet gets crushed by Japan. So they have this whole saga of sending the Baltic fleet, which is like leaky, old, shitty, bad battleships around the entire <laughs> world to try and bring them to like reinforce the Sars <sighs> Eastern holdings, like. Send them to Vladivostok. And then they just get crushed by the Japanese Navy, which has been trained and armed and outfitted by the British. And it's very funny. I strongly recommend you read like the story of this because it is one of the most hilarious naval voyages in history. Like they blow up like a bunch of fishing boats because they think they're Japanese submarines. They almost start a war with like Spain and Portugal. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. But as you might expect, this caused all sorts of chaos back home as everyone realized that the Tsar was an incompetent buffoon who could not run a country. Sure. And there's basically like an almost revolution. People are just rising up all over the place in like 1904 and 1905, like trying to throw down the Tsar's government and such in Georgia and in the Caucasus. This is especially strong because they never liked him anyway. (laughs) So like, it's (sighs) chaos. No one's in
1: charge. Right. If you already don't like your ruler and then a war starts and you go, oh, he's shit. Yeah. It's fucking, it's not over, but like it's over.
0: And the Georgian Bolsheviks, whom Stalin was basically in charge of, just like explode. There's like 50,000 of them now. And they're just like robbing, extorting, running portions of the countryside. It's a whole thing. Like they almost control Georgia with the Mensheviks. Jesus. At one point that you remember that lib governor of Georgia that we discussed earlier, he has to call in the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks to stop race riots.
1: What?
0: Because his own forces are so
1: like, they're the cops now. They are
0: the cops now. And this is where we get into the heist. Sort <gasps> of thing. So Stalin sets up this group called The Outfit which is specifically his bank robbery unit which would just go around and rob banks and carriages and things like that. Um, notable among these was Camo Stalin's flamboyant and rabid sidekick. He's a very funny guy. Um, it's said that his kind of like inherent insanity which is pretty clear given how often he offers to kill people for Stalin. It's this guy. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He yeah. like he spends five years in jail pretending to be insane the entire time to escape. That is commitment to the bit. And he's not actually like that insane
1: Yeah he, he's that guy um, Who's like
0: Stalin let me kill the guy Let me kill that guy I also want to note Other funny ways That they were making money For Lenin at this time Number one Piracy They had boats They had boats They bought a yacht And pirated ships with it uh, And also stowed away Aboard other ships And threatened to blow them up If the captains Didn't hand them over
1: Embrace. Marxism,
0: Leninism,
1: <laughs> piracy. piracy. Oh my
0: God. Um, and also they I were- want that flag. Also they were on the payroll of the Rothschilds. How'd that happen? The Rothschilds were sympathetic to them because they didn't like the Tsar. Really?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Von Mothma moment.
0: So in late 1905, as the almost revolution was reaching its high water mark, Stalin met his, quote, mountain eagle, that's Lenin, (laughs) for the first time in Finland. They would meet again in Stockholm in 1906 and
1: Berlin slash London in 1907. Okay, so they have not met up to this point. Stalin receives a letter. Several letters. Stalin receives that letter when he's in exile and Stalin creams his jeans. (laughs) And but before that, Stalin was still sending money to the Bolsheviks. Okay, Who
0: Lenin was. In charge of,
1: but it wasn't like personal relationship no.
0: But then it became personal, and Lenin becomes a big fan of Stalin too because he likes how much of a terrorist he is, right? And if then, if I were Lenin, how could you not? You know, um, important about this London Berlin meeting is that this is where Lenin and Stalin plan the robbery we're about to talk about, okay, and also where the Menshevik wing of the party because it's still all one party at this point gets robberies banned, makes them illegal from the party's manifesto. <laughs>
1: Crime is now illegal. (laughs) Like,
0: we're no longer going to do crime to support our enterprises. Okay. We're going to be a legitimate political party. That's interesting. And this is important because as part of, like, not having himself be overthrown, the Tsar had granted, like, the right to form a parliament. And so all these guys want to run in the parliament, and you can't run in the parliament if you're doing crime. Sure.
1: (laughs) At least hypothetically.
0: Hypothetically. They do it anyway. (laughs) Um, Stalin also gets married during this time to a woman named Cato, who would bear his first son and die in 1907 largely due to the stress of Stalin being pursued as a result of this robbery. Uh, He loved her, but he was not good to her.
1: Unsurprising.
0: Yeah. Notably, about the origins of his name, after Cato died, Stalin took up the practice of using women who he loved's name as his pen name. So for like 10 years, he was Yosef Cato, was his like pen name in Pravda and in his Vestia and other things. He dropped that eventually once he dated another woman whose last name was Stahl.
1: Oh. And so
0: Stahl in became his pen name after a
1: while. Wife Guy Stalin.
0: Wife Guy Stalin, he was a simp. But this brings us to the
1: heist. Oh my God, the point of this fucking episode.
0: So, as we mentioned a moment ago, it was now illegal to do crime in the Communist Party of Russia. Very disappointing for Stalin. <laughs> but Lenin still needs the money. He, he needs paying money. to people. Pub- Publish his books. He's paying people. Pay people, sure. Keep the Bolshevik underground alive. So he needs money. So Stalin, he goes and is like, okay, we're going to do one job. One, one more last job. job. In Georgia. Get the band back together. because the reaction to kind of that almost revolution that we talked about in Georgia had been really, really strong. And where there were like 50,000 Bolsheviks a couple years ago, there were now 500. And so he's like, we can do this really big job in Georgia and no one will give a shit. So first, all 20 people whom Stalin had recruited for his outfit temporarily resigned their memberships in the party because it was...
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is strategy. (laughs) It
0: is illegal to do crime if you're a member of the Communist Party. However, if you're not a member of the Communist Party, it's fine.
1: They go and become a a member of like the Tsarist party or whatever. <laughs> so it was actually those guys who did the crime.
0: No, I think that they were briefly independents. So ah.
1: literally two or three days after, like, they rejoined the party. <laughs> Maybe this is what Kian Grey Lark did after she resigned. Stalin,
0: who was always in danger in the party of being kicked out because he had really radical views, just couldn't be a part
1: of it. So he just had to watch. So he is not part of the bank he heist. He does not
0: actually do the bank heist. This is why I said he's Luthan, because he's always, like, organizing these bank heists and things to, like, give Lenin money, so but you're they're telling- never actually doing them.
1: So you're telling me that Stalin is not Cassian, Jaron, Andor. Stalin
0: is not Cassian, Jaron, Andor. Hmm. Sorry.
1: Interesting. Um,
0: regardless, though, Stalin had been planning out this particular job for months and had a man on the inside. One of Stalin's many informants handed over the schedules of transfers to the state bank in Tiflis's Yerevan Square. Every person had their role to play. Okay. So Camo, the psychopath we mentioned earlier, was meant to play a literal prince and actually rented a palace for some time before the robbery to play the part. <laughs> When the clock struck 10.30 on June 26th, 1907, they all moved into position. Two teenage girls, part of Stalin's gang, started flirting with the Tsar's political police. Others took up positions around Yerevan Square, covering the many police officers who were keeping watch over the area. The last few years had been a troubled time in the Russian Empire, and the Okranka, you know, Tsar's secret police, this is the KGB of the Tsar, had known that something was going to happen since the beginning of the year. Still others took over a bar on the square, inviting civilian passersby in to have a drink with them. When the time came- came, most of these people found that they were not allowed to leave.
1: Okay, so so you have people in a bar taking hostages? Not so much hostages, okay. I think,
0: is trying to get people out of the way.
1: Okay. Because, so like,
0: they could interfere cover. or we don't want to kill off too many civilians.
1: So it's like, you know, the next five rounds are on us. Yeah. for some reason. Oh, and by the
0: way, you can't leave. Yeah.
1: Something's (laughs) happening and I'm not going to tell you what, but just trust me.
0: So a signal eventually was given by the lookout, one Patsia Goldava, and those who had been in the bar were summoned to reinforce the 20-strong group of robbers in the square. Meanwhile, Camo, pretending to be a princely cavalry captain, began using his supposed authority to keep people out of the square. Although brutal, the Bolsheviks generally seemed to have avoided excess civilian casualties. That's
1: good. A lot of civilians are still
0: going to die. The caravan which was made up of four cossacks a carriage filled with police and the money carriage which had several important bank officials and a number of riflemen inside thundered past camo and into the square Immediately, the Bolsheviks sprang into action, pulling out firearms and blazing away at the cops. While others tossed more than ten apples, which was the Bolshevik euphemism for hand grenades, under the Russian carriages.
1: Okay, okay. So there is this big movement of money to a bank or from a bank to a bank to, to the state a bank. bank
0: on the square. Okay. So they're waiting till like the last second before it actually goes into the bank, which is built like a fortress.
1: And they they start firing on the cops. They start firing on the guards. And they, they throw grenades it under yeah. the the carriage.
0: Uh huh. Everyone in the carriage just dies.
1: Wait, not the money carriage.
0: No, they throw it in the money carriage. Under too, the money carriage, because they don't care about like they just need to kill the horse or disable the carriage.
1: Right, right. Okay.
0: So the police were routed, fleeing as an unexpected hail of bullets emerged from the previously <laughs> peaceful square. But the booty carriage still had one living horse, and after a moment, it bolted.
1: Oh, so okay, okay. So the, the horses are like reeked out. They think they're all dead. The horses in the other
0: carriage die, and then and they, one of the horses in the this first one just carriage goes. dies. But the other one is like freaked out, and it
1: just goes for it. With this like carriage of money
0: which is the thing they're going for <laughs> only the quick action of one of the robbers stopped it he literally dived in front of the carriage with a grenade and blew up the horse like turned oh, it into paste
1: that's horrible nearly that killing himself horse. in the process all of these poor horses but he didn't die the guy he didn't, didn't die.
0: die he got blown back the horse didn't He also didn't get captured somehow. Like, we'll get to this in a moment. Another revolutionary grabbed the sacks of money out of the carriage and ran as the rest of the group began to scatter. I think they blew up up to 10 bombs in the square, uh, had attracted unwanted police attention from the rest of the city and cops and like soldiers and everyone was just rushing to the square to try and like, you know, stop whatever the hell was going on. (laughs) But the guy with the money was spooked and hesitated, not knowing where to go. The revolutionaries had meant to commandeer the carriage whose horse had just been reduced to a red smear. (sighs) This was a problem. Camo, prince in shining armor predictably, saves the day. So he gallops into the square with a carriage in tow, still decked out in his uniform and brandishing a saber and a Mauser pistol. He starts shooting at anyone who seems hostile, doing like donuts. Dual wielding
1: on a horse with a
0: carriage. Doing donuts around the square with his carriage to like drive all the cops when they've all fled away because they're scared of like this psychotic Georgian dude with a saber and a pistol and a carriage. The remaining revolutionaries, like the girls that have been fording help him load the money into the carriage and he just rides the fuck off and everyone else just scatters.
1: MVP. They should add horse and carriage stance to the sequel to Jedi Survivor. So with
0: audacity typical to his nature, Camo rides right past the cops because he's still in uniform and shouts at them that the money is safe.
1: Oh. He like tells them he has it in the carriage, but it's safe because right, he's a member right, of the gendarmerie. Right. I mean, he's not lying. <laughs> They don't get all the money.
0: No, there's 20,000 left in the carriage. Yeah. And there
1: was some left over. They got
0: most of it. Like by a long okay. shot.
1: That's pretty good.
0: Um Bank still has some the money. The police though. the police chief was among the cops who he rode by. Uh, he killed himself the next day upon realizing that the guy with the money had written past him.
1: The police chief did. The
0: police chief killed himself because he was so ashamed.
1: Thus to all. I feel
0: a little bad for him, but he is a cop. Yeah. Cop in the SARS regime, by the way.
1: <laughs> don't don't feel too bad for him.
0: Yeah. Um. So somehow all of the robbers escaped alive, even the guy who almost blew himself up. All of them. Yes. And the total haul came to more than 250,000 rubles, which is a princely sum by any measure. Uh, I'm not sure exactly exactly how that converts to U.S. dollars. It's like a few million, right? Given that a 1907 U.S. dollar was worth about 35, 2023 U.S. dollars, uh, it's probably around $10 million that they escaped with. Oh, man. A lot of money. 50 were wounded, more than 40 were killed, both civilian and SARS officials, uh. and the national and international news predictably freaked the fuck out.
1: Some, so everyone is talking about this.
0: I have some good headlines from the Daily Mirror, which is a British newspaper, British tabloid these days, but back then it was kind of respectable. Fuck the mirror. Reign of bombs. Revolutionaries hurled destruction among large crowds of people. And then the French newspaper, Le Temps, they just printed the headline, Catastrophe.
1: Real, uh, real creative there. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even have managed a pun or anything.
0: This is the heist that would make Stalin a name to be known among
1: revolutionaries. And... So people know that Stalin is involved? Or oh, at yeah. least the Bolsheviks they, know? The
0: Bolsheviks all know. And now all the Bolsheviks are like, yo, Stalin, that is our
1: motherfucker. <laughs> this guy just joined our party Right after doing this (laughs) bank robbery.
0: And the Mensheviks. New blood. The Mensheviks predictably try and expel him from the party again over this. Well,
1: I wouldn't want Stalin at my party.
0: (sighs) Stalin would continue running the shady side of the Bolshevik political organization until his arrest and four year exile in 1912, the same year that he would commit his last robbery. He went to Baku, which is an oil city in the Caucasus, continued running rampant, was exiled a number of times, uh, then ended up in St. Petersburg for a while, then in exile in Vienna for a little while, and then he's back. Back in Russia, back in Baku, does a few more robberies, gets sent to Siberia, but this time so far into Siberia that he can't escape. And he spends kind of most of World War I there until 1917 when he's finally released. He and his buddies take literal like dog sleds all the way back to St. Petersburg. <laughs> the story of what happened afterwards is likely well known to all of you. It's called the Russian Revolution. <laughs> what happened to Stalin next? Well, Did you might have heard anything... of the Soviet
1: Union. So it went good. and For, for Stalin. Stalin was a good guy, right? No. uh,
0: Then he becomes kind of one of Lenin's two right-hand men as they're running the revolution in the Civil War. And then when Lenin dies, Stalin kind of wins the power struggle to take control. Trotsky is exiled and Stalin rules as absolute dictator for 30 years.
1: Damn. Just like Cassian, Jaren Andor. (laughs) Yeah. uh, They intercepted a bank caravan. They blew up a horse. They got away they blew up four horses they blew up multiple horses that's horrible the majority of horses in history have been mistreated Jesus so in Aldani we have some people infiltrating a dam and they have a guy who's a lieutenant and all of that stuff and they steal uh money
0: from the empire I was
1: gonna say they steal a, a like a loader but yes they steal money from the Empire how close do we feel like this is
0: I mean, there's obviously some inspiration that could have been taken, but I don't feel as though it's like in any way the same.
1: No, it's not modeled after the 1907 bank robbery. And I mean, we do have a big robbery, a robbery that gets this galactic response, both the media and political response to the Aldani heist is charged, to say the least. But at the same time, we don't have an equivalent for something like PORD, which is the the public order resentencing directive. uh, I
0: mean, to be fair, in the Tsarist Empire, this had already kind of happened in the wake of the 1904 and 1905 revolutions. Like they'd sent a lot more people into exile. But like Russian exile under the Tsar wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. Like it was not the gulag. It was just like you get sent to a village. The Tsar pays you 10 rubles a month to keep yourself alive and you're bored for 10 years. That
1: sounds like an okay way of doing it, frankly.
0: Or they would like deport you to Poland. A fate worse than death.
1: I sh- I certainly did not bury the lead towards the beginning of this episode, but I don't see Aldani as mapping onto this. I believe people went, oh, there's this heist in Andor and Gilroy talked about this heist in Stalin and no one read the book and just made an assumption, which was false. I mean, it, it is not based on the Tiflis bank robbery. They
0: should really make like an eight part series on young Stalin, yeah. like a TV show. That would Gilroy be Gilroy should
1: make the Stalin show. That would be super that would fun. Be very- very cool. Yeah, Um I want to learn to hate Stalin in a dramatic way.
0: You should read the whole book. I understand Stalin a lot more than I used to. Not, I, not I still great think he's a dude. Day.
1: Yeah,
0: I do think it's interesting how you can take the priest out of the religion, but you maybe cannot take the religion out of the priest because Stalin spent his entire like young life extremely immersed in a very very rigid form of Christianity, and even though he leaves the church as like a teenager, kind of the way. He he approaches Marxism throughout his life is very religious. He ends up
1: even building like a cult of personality. Yeah, I think it's, it is very clear that when you are primed to think in certain fundamentalist ways that you take that beyond a deconversion process. And I mean, it isn't just religion, right? We have there are plenty of people who are like radicalized to the right wing online and the thing they do after that, after realizing, oh shit, maybe racism is bad is often not like de-radicalization and, and because like the joining extreme, the center, yeah. yeah. They they go and they they become a Marxist Leninist. They become a Marxist Let's be clear. I think there are ways in which that can be really good and really positive. But like, if you are used to thinking in clear cut, definite terms about the world, it, it can be easy to exchange that for different ones.
0: There is a way in which Marxist ideology is quite amenable to that exchange mm-hmm. because there is a clear bad guy: the bourgeoisie, capital. There is an original sin: capitalism, and exploitation those are the original sin of society and you know we wait for this promised day long in the future when the magical revolution will happen to solve all of humanity's it, problems
1: it, it is deeply futurist and a lot of, of popular leftist ideology is like waiting for the reckoning day when I, I don't think that's exactly the best way to build political change but it's really compelling and it's easy to sell people on I fully get the appeal you know I, I'm in that camp but yeah I, I think belief structures all bear similarities to one another in the ways that people join them, leave them, switch between them, and I don't know, prescription for our listeners. Be careful not to think of your politics as a religion. That
0: would be good. You might start um, one of the world's worst regimes, which would be
1: bad. If anyone listening to this is in a position to do that kind of political change, do... Good. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do do good. Actually, do um, a good thing. Actually, but also don't do uh, a bad thing.
0: Other thing I kind of wanted to mention is why the Stalinist regime became so bad is largely because of these days that we're talking about here. Stalin spent his entire like formational years as a Marxist leader, dealing with horrible conspiracies and traitors all the time, and having to fight the Ukraina with outside forces, and he never lost it, which is why in the 1930s he purged the entire Soviet military and government.
1: So he was. In full, like, there will be a conspiracy against me mode for his entire life. Yeah.
0: And like, it was especially bad because one of the highest ranking Marxist politicians at the time, Bolshevik politicians, I should say, ended up betraying the Bolshevik party despite being like in the Central Committee and inner circle. He was on the payroll of the Tsar the entire time. And like, that just put this paranoia into the heart of the Bolshevik party forever.
1: Uh, and so on as well. Uh, don't be too paranoid that you kill all that <laughs> you purge the fucking military. Don't be so paranoid that you kill thirty million people. Like a recommendation, maybe do don't not, do not the cool hacks. All right, do you want to do some emails? Let's do some emails. Our first emails from Alessandro Massey. Dear Eleanor and Sophia, I love Daughters of Ferex. I've been searching for years for a place to have discussions on politics, history, and Star Wars. I'm so happy I found you. I'm so happy you found us too, Alessandra. I
0: am also happy about this.
1: For years, I was a liberal arguing in the culture wars online.
0: And now you are a MAGA Trumpist because the left left you, right?
1: (laughs) Let me finish the damn email, Sophie. I live for those cathartic moments many liberals dream of, where a debate concludes with a point-by-point breakdown that reveals the backwardness of the conservative position, eviscerating them such that... they admit defeat. Of course, these only exist in the scripted worlds of Aaron Sorkin shows. (laughs) Thankfully, I became radicalized to my current understanding of class struggle sometime in the mid-2010s. For me, there was no singular moment that caused this shift towards leftism, but rather a collection of events and books that shaped my politics. So in this way, a show like Andor, in which a series of experiences move the character further and further until they must accept their path of rebellion, speaks to me. I was wondering if you have plans to discuss resistance movements and their parallels in Star Wars beyond what you've already said on Saga and the history of the Rebel Alliance. For example, when I rewatch Andor today, I find it impossible to not immediately think of the people of Palestine. Keep up the great work. You've earned a fan for life. The Force is surely with you, Alessandro.
0: You have no idea how much I entered sicko mode when you said talk about resistance movements in the future. Like, yes, we are in fact going to do that. And it is closer than you think.
1: In two weeks, we will be doing an episode on that. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it, it is going to be a about- a critique
0: of resistance movements.
1: We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um. Yeah, and or it's going to be one of those shows that as you watch it, kind of no matter where you're at and where we're at in world history, is going to be resonant with something. It's really easy to watch it and think of oppressed peoples, period. You know, it it is generic enough in some of its struggles that you can kind of tap into it in in any sort of way. And yeah, definitely if we are looking at colonialist states or authoritarian states or just sort of those powers functioning in systems that are receptive to them, it's going to be resonant for a long time, probably past when any of us are alive. I also expect that, you know, no matter where you're at politically, where you're going to be in a few years will be kind of like a refinement and an extension of that, right? We are always developing. We are always changing. And there are always these moments where we're like, oh, that is changing the way I'm thinking about that. And that is the, the beauty of the slow burn that is, and or season one, is, is Cassian's radicalization. So, yeah, I am fully with you there, Alessandro. Uh, I hope you tune back in in two weeks because uh, you're going to get what you want. Our next email is from Joel Davis. Hi, Joel. Hello, Daughters of FairX. Hello. I've been thinking recently about the First Order and love to get your insights on the parallel I made not to post-World War II Nazis, but post-World War I Nazis. I think it would be interesting to see the differences in the various Imperial remnant forces during the events of the Mandovers. While they all want to restore themselves to power, they may want to do so in different ways. This is similar to the post-World War I right-wing movement in Germany, for as weird as it is to say not all of them were Nazis. Yes, they were all bad people who wanted to restore Germany to some sort of former glory, but the Nazis themselves were a faction in the wider movement with their own unique goals, while other parts of the movement wanted different things such as the restoration of the Kaiser or were just military aristocrats who all worked together but didn't get along. I think it is interesting to see the differences in First Order types versus people who want to see a galactic monarchy restored in the Empire or former Imperial military aristocratic types. Huck Sr. and Thrawn may want the same thing, but they go about it in different ways and may just personally hate each other. Anyway, sorry if this question is a bit rambly, but love to get your insight into this observation and hope for some Imperial remnant politicking. Love the podcast, Joel Davis.
0: Now, the thing about times after large wars, right? World War One, the Galactic Civil War, times after these are all always- Always the most interesting times politically because you have just a whole bunch of people who have previously been kind of held together by the war, by nationalism, by things like that, who can kind of just run free. Like the Weimar Republic is probably the most politically diverse political system in history where you have like Marxist, Leninists and Nazis in parliament at the same time. And everyone in between is also in parliament. Don't quote me on this, but I think there was like a gay liberation party that got a seat in parliament during the Weimar public at one point. And I think kind of in the same way, the post-galactic civil war period has all that sort of thing. Like you have kind of the centrist imperials who are into the empire, not so much because of, I don't know, even fascism, but because they think that, you know, the galaxy needs order and we've had too much chaos in recent times. Right. We
1: we need the strong arm of the state to hold us together. We need this highly militarized government because That's that's a lot of what it is, is there is like a military fetishism within that contingent.
0: And then you have obviously like people who are into the emperor and you have Nazis, the first order. (laughs) there is really a cogent comparison to be drawn there. It's a very interesting period to look at in both cases.
1: I am very interested in the ways in which Star Wars in canon diversifies that threat. And part of this is a way for the mechanics of Star Wars to allow for imperial enemies for like three decades, if they really want to, in different ways, in different settings, right? We get the centrists as an opposition party, as a sort of antagonistic force in the novel bloodline when our protagonist is a senator and she's doing politics stuff so it makes sense but also i mean we do have this transition from you have the inner systems imperial remnant which sort of is trying to do empire but just like totally sucks ass at it and that is
0: i mean com- to be fair palpatine's empire also totally sucked ass
1: yes at it. yes but they don't have resources either because they're not allowed to do colonialism and, and all that bullshit boring yeah woke we we can't even have we Joe can't even Biden's have the empire anymore because of woke <laughs> But I mean, we have stuff that is contemporary. We have Thrawn stuff, yeah, going on at the same time as whatever the hell, whatever the hell Moff Gideon was up to. And clearly these are not the same plans. They are connected in certain ways, right? The Shadow Council, as it was established after Endor and kind of continued into the First Order, but we don't know when that transition took place. We don't know exactly how that goes down. The Shadow Council fucking hates each other. <laughs> like it's some guys who I mean, have- we
0: see that in the Mandalorian. They just uh- don't- uh-huh. Like each other. It's
1: it's people who want one kind of power and people who are trying to do one other thing. Uh again, Moff Gideon is doing this like really specific sort of narcissistic. Stupid thing. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I want to create this guy and gain dominance over it. And it's like, there is no like political strategy here. He
0: doesn't seem to be like particularly powerful either. Mm-mm. Like we don't ever see him with a Star Destroyer,
1: and we know for a fact Thrawn has
0: a whole ton of Star Destroyers.
1: Included in the Shadow Council, not in The Mandalorian, but in is Grand Admiral Ray Sloan, who is the contingent that goes into the, the Unknown Regions and does the First Order, and is building up resources, and is colonizing, and, like, completely different goals, because they're playing the long game, and, and this is who Brendel Hux, which is uh, General Hux's dad, um, this is who he works for, and and he's in the Shadow Council in, in the Mandalorian, so that's, he's almost definitely representing Sloan, and the First Order. So, <laughs> the thing that the right wing has on kind of anyone else is that they hate each other as much as you might hate your political enemy, but that doesn't matter as much. The thing that, that binds them together is that they get to hate the left or liberals or whatever they decide their political enemies are, and they get to hate women or black people. And and that sort of gives them this allyship that you do not find in the left because the left is only kind of bound by our resentment for certain systems of capital, right? Like at best. <laughs> and,
0: and and a certain like, you know, disdain for the right for yeah, being yeah. like weirdos. We'll,
1: we'll, we know that racism is bad. We'll acknowledge Black History Month. Happy Black History Month, by the way.
0: But then we're too busy like fighting each other most of the time to like actually be effective. This is the whole thing. We just, Learn about in Stalin's like whole life story is he's constantly just like fighting with the goddamn Mensheviks. Every other sentence is the book in this like, and then Stalin assassinated a Menshevik. And then a Menshevik tried to assassinate Stalin. And then the Mensheviks tried to get Stalin kicked out of the party. And then the Mensheviks
1: like, I'm a big fan of that conversation Luthen has with Saw where Luthen's like, I'm a coward. I just want the leftists to get along because that that is kind of me. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I have I have my specific pet theories or whatever. But like, come on. On come on, let's make sure that trans people aren't getting iced in the street. You know, I mean, I
0: will strongly advocate for Marxism, Leninism, Monarchism. However,
1: (laughs) but that's the thing is that's so much harder when you have people who have political ideals that are not just let's genocide some people.
0: Yeah, like I don't know. The right's major disagreements is like, hey, let's genocide some people with a fascism, b monarchy, c something else.
1: In the show sources, they also
0: want to genocide people, right?
1: It, in the show sources, I'm going to put a link to a really good video essay by Big Joel where he just talks about this conservative debate where it's like some conservatives who really hate gay people and some conservatives who only kind of hate gay people, including Billy White, and just kind of the sham. Like, I, I think it's called the fiction of conservative debate. I'm going to link that because there's a really good example Oh, I think of I've it. seen that. It's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, I really like I, th- I think Big Joel's a really smart guy. Anyway, really good question, uh, Joel. There is a lot there. And I really hope we keep seeing more and more of political tension from the Star Wars right. Fingers crossed. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the hell Ron is up to. So our last email today is from Dylan McGuire. Dylan says, hello, I hope you're both doing well. This one shall be short. First, as I was listening to today's episode, a thought occurred to me while you were discussing Planet X. Could this possibly be the planet that Yoda visits in the Clone Wars episodes Destiny, Season 6, Episode 12? Or do we know that it's not? Is Planet X to that planet what Jakku is to Tatooine? Do you have any thoughts on this? Because I know the answer. I
0: remember this happening. I don't know.
1: The answer is no. I like the way you're thinking. The planet that Yoda goes to in Destiny is the wellspring of the Force. It is in the deep core. It is in the center of the galaxy. Not like the center, because there's a black hole in the center of the galaxy. But yeah, and it, the surface of the wellspring of the Force is barren and like craggy. And uh, Planet
0: X is lush.
1: Planet X is lush. It is covered in forests and life. And it is in wild space. So it is somewhere probably on the circumference of the galaxy. It is on the outside, potentially on like an outer spiral arm. So there's just like the geographic differences too. Um, Mortis is also in Wilds space. I don't think that Planet X is the same as Mortis for a few different reasons, but that's the type of thing it could be because Mortis is awash with life and with weirdness in the Force. But also, Mortis is this weird, like, time out of reality space in the Clone Wars, and that is not the case for Planet X as far as we can tell. Time on Planet X seems to function normally, unless we just haven't gotten that reveal. I don't think they're the same. But we are seeing these planets, these locations that are very convergences in the force that are like force nexuses the wellspring specifically is the place that midichlorians come from and mortis is the place where the mortis gods dwell which i mean take it or leave it how those affect your view of the force but it seems like planet x is just like you know fucking raging with the force like it is just it's vibing it is possible it has some connection to something that is similar, but I don't think so. I think it is an original thing, but it's, it's drawing from those, those sorts of ideas. Good question, though. I think that's a, a really good question. And last, in regards to the problematicness of some Star Wars races being shoehorned into stereotypes, I was wondering if you thought there is any significant difference between races being portrayed as generally one thing, like the Sith race, and racism within the Star Wars galaxy that paints certain races with a broad brush. For example, in the episode, the Twi'leks were referred to as being portrayed as the sex worker race. I'm not disputing that, but do you think that's how they're portrayed, or that's how many people within the Star Wars galaxy wrongly view them? Did one morph into the other as new creators tried to correct a wrong? as this is a work of fiction that can only be conceived by creators and perceived by real people in our world, is there simply no significant difference? Forgive me if that last paragraph is rambling nonsense. All the best, Dylan Maguire.
0: No, that's good, actually. I like that a lot. That's an interesting way of thinking about it because we know that there is canonically racism in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes an author is going to maybe accidentally be racist towards the Twi'leks because all of the characters in other books are racist towards the Twi'leks.
1: Dylan, your read on one turning into the other as new creators try to correct a wrong. It's that. Yeah, for the Twileks. For yeah. the Twi-leks, it is that is what happens. We are introduced to Twileks in Jabba's Palace. Bib Fortuna is technically the first Twilek we see, but the first one that that gets our attention is the really like Ula. Yeah. Her name she's is Ula.
0: Scantily clad, she's yeah.
1: Yeah, gets dropped into the rancor pit, gets killed. Yeah. And and specifically the way female Twileks are depicted fall along these lines. And that was followed up on and and reinforced in materials in the early 90s and stuff and since then there has been a concerted effort in Star Wars to portray that trend as an in-universe mistreatment but other times we'll have stuff like The Sanctuary in Book of Boba Fett where Garza Fwip is this character who is elevated to this position of authority within her place but like she is still an entertainer she is still dressed a certain way and in The Sanctuary there are not explicitly sex workers but scantily clad Twi'lek. There are men and women, potentially a, a, a trans man, uh, but that is still falling into that. So Star Wars tries to correct it or tries to make it an in-universe thing a lot of the time, and then they kind of walk it back because they're still trying to do the same iconography and call back to the original trilogy or whatever, and they keep doing it.
0: I mean, you can even, even kind of see it in um, Jedi Aloe Secura, who is a Twi'lek. While she is certainly not a sex worker in anything, she's portrayed as, I believe, kind of a bad ass Jedi, actually. Ayla Sakura is cool when she um, shows up.
1: She also wears a sports bra. If you want to talk about this sort of thing in the Star Wars fandom, you'll have people being like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, Ayla Sakura is, uh, is counter to that. And it's like, not quite. Like, the way she is being visually depicted does fall into that. We do have people who break out of that. Harrison Dula does not ever reinforce that idea about how Twi'leks look, dress, and act. But she is an exception, and sometimes she is explicitly an exception in the setting. A lot of the time, when it comes to a sapient species of person if they are the one thing species that is a type of species, right the
0: species of hats that that is what it is
1: like again this is just going into what we talked about last time but even if it is not a negative stereotype even if it is a positive trait it's still yikesy to do that it's still yikesy to go this type of person is the math type of person <laughs> that's givens that's the given species
0: and we all know what you're talking about because it's a
1: stereotype. Oh, right. It, and and we have a uh, we have a horrible racist stereotype in our real world for humans about that. If you're talking to racists, you, you know, you you might be like having racist stereotypes is bad and they'd be like, "Well, <laughs> Asian Americans are really good at math. Yeah, so if anything, I'm an Asian supremacist. And it's like, no, you are still objectifying those people, right? It's still racist. And I'm not saying like Star Wars is aggressively racist for doing that. No, but it is kind of this tendency that Star Wars has, no matter the quality of the one thing for the alien race, I guess, if that makes sense. So sometimes Star Wars tries to to walk it back, and I think it is right, too. I think it's fun and complicated when characters in universe are like, Twi'leks are... This species that has been unreasonably targeted and treated as sexual objects. I think that's interesting. I think that's kind of cool. But it is in dialogue with these past portrayals. And, you know, we're still doing that prejudice. Uh, Very good email. Thank you very much, Dylan. If you have any questions, suggestions, or corrections, you can send them to our show email, daughtersfairix at gmail.com.
0: If you want to listen to new episodes as they release every other Wednesday, you can find us on most places. You can listen to podcasts on our website, daughtersoffairix.com, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at
1: fairixpod, F-E-R-R-I-X-P-O-D. If you're able, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash I have been Eleanor Mueller. You can find me at The Letter Bomber on most platforms. Sophie, where can our listeners find you?
0: You can find me at Sophia in S. SL- see on Twitter and at my other podcast at the red line underscore pod. Also
1: on Twitter, we talk about trains. Our episodes are written and edited by me, Eleanor Mueller and Sophia Dunstan. Our podcast art is by Jill Mueller. Our intro and outro music was arranged by me with themes by Nicholas Bertal and John Williams. Thanks for listening.
0: Buy our Patreon or I will cry. <laughs>